You have no idea how happy I am to be here with you. I am so grateful. I've loved this church from a distance for a long time because of your good works and the things that you have supported and done because of your preacher, your elders, your members that I've grown to know and love. And uh, some of them I became great family friends with by way of travel. And you learn a lot about people when you travel with them. I learned good things about your brethren here. And uh, I love you uh, so much as a, a brother in Christ for what you stand for and for all that you are doing for the kingdom of God. And certainly it is my prayer that what I say tonight will help you to become a stronger and better Christian. I am grateful to have Tony not as a fellow preacher, but also as a great friend, and to love him for his work's sake. And so many of the good brethren here I've known from other efforts that I've been privileged to participate in. Glad my wife Tish could be with me tonight to hear that introduction. Uh, uh, actually, it's not a good time to say that since I'm speaking on pride and arrogance, right? <laughs> I don't need to be reveling in an introduction like that, especially when I know I don't live up to it. But thank you anyway. It does mean a lot to hear it, even though uh, I can't begin to measure up to it. I want to ask you to consider with me tonight as we begin this message that really there's a sense in which, and this has nothing to do with the fact that this is my assigned topic, but there's a sense in which every other issue you've heard addressed in this summer series exists because of this problem tonight, the problem of pride. There's a sense in which it's the very first sin ever committed because every indication that we have is that Satan, by some kind of act of pride and rebellion on his part, who was unwilling to accept the divine authority of God and God alone, uh, apparently thrust himself into the spotlight as wanting to have more power than he had. And uh, though Isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 and following is really talking in the context about Babylon as a nation, uh, there is a sense in which some of the imagery that is used there to describe what had happened to Babylon or what would happen to them is reminiscent of something that had happened in previous time. And Paul says in First Timothy chapter 3 that anyone that wants to become an elder in the church doesn't need to be a novice. Why? Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil, indicating that the devilish pride that uh, we see in Satan certainly is the problem with him. And uh, it's the problem, quite frankly, with so many of us. What's the middle letter of the word pride? It's the letter I. What is the middle letter of the word sin? It is the letter I. And when I am so focused on what I want that I don't really care that much about what God wants, that's when sin is generated, when I'm more interested in me rather than God. In fact, didn't Paul say in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. I put self to death. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, which doesn't fill me with pride in a bad sense. It makes me look at myself and say, how did I possibly receive such a great blessing when I don't deserve it? Now, think about this with me. This subject is so broad and so vast, I had a hard time narrowing down what I would say in one sermon on it. 
Uh, we could spend all of our time tonight in the book of Proverbs and find more passages there on the subject of pride than we would have time to investigate. I, what I did when I received this assignment and started thinking about it, and even on the way here today as my wife drove and I was recycling these thoughts through my mind, I just kept thinking about it and thinking about everywhere you look. You just open your Bible to just about any page and you'll find it. There it is. Someone's evidencing pride or doing something, being punished for some prideful act on their part. It's everywhere. And that got me to thinking. Where do you find pride on the pages of the Bible? Well, number one, you'll find it in a garden. You'll find it in the Garden of Eden where we read that uh, Eve was there and Satan approached her in the form of a serpent. And do you remember as we prepare our minds for Genesis 3, something John says in 1 John chapter 2, he talks about the contrast between worldly things and the things that are of the Father. And he says all that is in the world. And then he lists three things. You remember what they were? The lust of the flesh, what tastes good. The lust of the eyes, what looks good. And the pride of life, what makes me look good? Go to Genesis 3 and see if you see any different modus operandi from Satan in Genesis 3 than is mentioned by John in 1 John 2. I'm telling you, he's never changed his ways. He's trying the same stuff tonight that he tried in the Garden of Eden. And you and I need to be forewarned because that is to be forearmed. What does Satan try to do in the garden? Look at verse 6. When the woman, Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there's the lust of the flesh, that would taste so good. And that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, that looks so good. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. If I eat it, it will make me look so good. Satan has promised me that I'll, God's holding out on us, you see. God doesn't want me to be as smart as he is. And if I eat of that fruit, I'll know as much as God knows. And I want to be as smart as anyone else is. Pride, pride, pride started what happened in the Garden of Eden. And you know, I, I heard with sadness tonight the announcement that was just made by way of prayer that I was not aware of, of course, not being a member here about four families here this week losing loved ones. Did I hear that correctly? And may I remind you of what you already know but still need to be reminded of? None of us would have ever walked to an open grave anywhere at any time if it hadn't been for sin. And sin would not have existed as it existed in the Garden of Eden had it not been for this thirst to taste what was apparently good, to look at something that, and oh, it will make me look so good. I want to look good. And so they did what they did and look at what we have. Pride. It's deadly. It's destructive. No wonder we need to overcome it. And by the way, if you think Satan's not going to try this on you, may I remind you of what he did to the very Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, in Matthew chapter 4. Satan, what's your modus operandi going to be with Jesus? Are you going to change your tactics? I mean, you are dealing with the very Son of God. You remember Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. And the Bible says that in verse 3 of Matthew 4, the tempter came to him, 
If thou be the Son of God, appealing to prove who you are, prove that you're somebody. If you're really the Son of God, then let's see you prove it. Command by your divine authority that these stones be made bread. Wouldn't some bread taste awfully good right now? Wouldn't you like a piece of bread? Doesn't that sound good? Same exact tactics as he tried in the Garden of Eden. Jesus, of course, says man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then the devil takes him, verse 5, into a holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. We visited in that area, and you can see how they would have set him there and look out across all these places. And then he quotes a scripture, misuses and misapplies it, but Jesus corrects his thinking. And then verse 8, the devil takes him into an exceeding high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Look at this and the glory of them. Look, doesn't that look good to you? I'll give it all to you if you'll fall down and worship me. And Satan is told, get thee behind me. Jesus is not having any of this. He's not fooled by Satan's deceptive tactics. And yet you and I often are. We need to be mindful of where you find pride. You find it in the Garden of Eden. Number two tonight, you find it in the days leading up to the flood. Oh, pride is at a zenith. Remember, every imagination of the thought of man was only evil continually, according to Genesis 6. But I want to take you to the book of Jude tonight. I want to show you that long before Noah ever preached his first sermon on what was wrong with the world of his day, there was someone before him that had been preaching this for a long time. In fact, in the book of Jude, this one chapter book that we find near the back of our New Testaments, you'll find in verse 14 this declaration from Jude's inspired pen. He says, And Enoch also. And if you start in Genesis 5 and you start counting down from Adam, indeed he is the seventh from Adam. And what do we know about Enoch? We remember that when he was 365 years old, God took him and he was no longer on the earth. Uh, The Bible also tells us something else about Enoch. He was a prophet. He prophesied of those of his day and told of a coming of the Lord that was going to take place. Why would this Lord, why would the Lord come? Verse 15, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him four times in a single verse he uses the word ungodly which is more times than some pulpits have used it in the last 40 years in some places truth be told ungodly and if you think we've not lost our moral compass in this nation in at least some people's hearts and minds not in the hearts of so many like you here tonight. But look, when there is such a backlash because the owner of Chick-fil-A actually has the audacity to say that he believes in the biblical definition of marriage, and suddenly we have mayors all over the United States saying, well, Chicago values aren't those values. Well, wait a minute. Biblical definition. Are you saying, Mr. Mayor of Chicago, that your values aren't biblical values? Uh, well, uh, yeah. You know, it used to be, and this is what troubles me and breaks my heart. We've gotten so big for our britches in America in some circles. It used to be 
It used to be that if you were having a debate about whether you needed to be baptized to be saved or whether it's right or wrong to be homosexual or whether this, that, or the other, the general prevailing view of yesteryear in our culture was whatever this book says, that would be the answer. The Bible says, now there were debates about whether the Bible really said such and such about certain things, but at least everyone, generally speaking, believed that this would be the standard to use to determine our controversy and what the truth is on the matter. And you know what? Here's the sad thing. Nowadays, when you and I say, well, the Bible says the prideful attitude of modern man is, so, who cares what the Bible says? Why does that matter to me? I've got my own values. Where did you get them from, sir? Where did you get your values? If you're telling me your values didn't come from this book, I'd like to know where you got them and how you know they're right. I know that man gets so proud and arrogant of his education, and I'm not against good education, but I'm telling you people can get so wise, worldly wise, they forget Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, which talks about how the wise man doesn't need to glory in his wisdom, the mighty man doesn't need to glory in his might, the rich man doesn't need to glory in his wealth. If you want to glory in something, glory in this, that you understand and know me, God says. I'm the reason that you ought to be happy about your knowledge, not because you know something that I don't know. And yet in the days before the flood, here they heard all these warnings about what was coming. And you know what Jude predicted? It's coming. The judgment is coming. In fact, something that I did not know for years that has really blessed my knowledge and appreciation for the grace and mercy of God and His long-suffering. I mean, I knew for years Methuselah was the longest living man, 969 years old. I knew that. I've learned that in Bible class very early on. But I never really bothered to ask myself why he lived longer than anyone else ever did. And then I was reading one day, and one author pointed out that the Hebrew etymology of the name Methuselah has been variously discussed, but there are uh, numbers of Hebrew scholars who would uh, suggest that it means man of the dark, man of someone sent forth, man of something that is sent. And uh, the idea that is postulated by some commentators that is very fascinating to consider is that Enoch would have looked at the world of his day, the proud, smug, arrogant, ungodly world of his day, and he would have said, okay... You see this baby boy right here? When he is dead, it will be sent forth. When he is dead, it shall come. James Montgomery Boyce, in his work on Genesis, talks about this very issue. And uh, there's a sense in which the name Methuselah sent the message, when he is dead, there will be a sending forth of what I've been telling you is going to be sent. And that's the judgment of God. And in the very year that Methuselah died, if you do the chronology from Genesis 5, in the very year that Methuselah died, here comes the flood, just like Enoch predicted. Now I want to ask you a question. What would prevent these people from accepting Enoch's message or Noah's message? Noah preached for decades trying to get people to listen. And man was so smug and self-sufficient. How many people got on that boat with Noah? Eight, counting him. At least he was able to get his own family on there. That's tremendous. But I'm telling you this, my friends. There are those in this world who hear preaching just like they heard it in Noah's day and Enoch's day. And their attitude is, I don't need that. 
I don't need that. Don't preach to me. Don't preach at me. I don't need your preaching. Look, I'm going to tell you, I need this message right here because I am in need of a GPS to get me from earth to heaven. I need to know the way. I'm not embarrassed to ask God for directions. I want to know how to get there. I'm not too proud to investigate his gospel plan of salvation, his GPS, and to take his word and to go with it. Now, I want you to see in the third place tonight, you see pride in the garden. You see pride in the days leading up to and during the flood. You see it in the wilderness. You see it in the wilderness. Look at Exodus 16. Here are these people who've been in Egyptian bondage. If God had shown anything to them at all, He'd shown, I can take care of you. Watch this. He does a plague and protects them from it in Goshen. I can do it. Now watch this. He does another thing. No one else has ever been. The magicians of Pharaoh can't duplicate some of the things that God, they can't in fact duplicate any of the things God is doing. They can make it look like they're doing the same thing in certain areas, but they even have to admit we can't do that. We can't even make you think we're doing that. So why do the children of Israel doubt a God who's so powerfully proven himself to them? Pride. We need to come up with a plan because God doesn't have this under control. Exodus 16. You remember they act act like the God that cared enough to deliver them from bondage is somehow suddenly not bright enough to know that they need food and water in the wilderness. He doesn't have a clue about this, so we're going to have to come up with our own ingenious human plan. And their plan was murmur to Moses. That's the plan. Moses! Aaron, do something. Uh, God will do it. The same way he's gotten you to this point, the same God that got you this far will get you to the promised land. Trust him. Don't get so wrapped up in your idea of, well, I think it ought to be done this way, or I don't think think God knows what he's doing. Exodus 16 shows that Moses confronts them, and if you'll notice in verse number 12, God says of Exodus 16, I've heard the murmurings of the children of Israel speaking to them, saying, At even ye shall eat flesh, and in the morning you'll be filled with bread, and you'll know that I am the Lord your God. You'll know that I can do what I promised. And you need to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Now, in number 16 in the wilderness, these people got so proud, they said, Moses, Aaron, you who made you in charge of it? Why are you the only ones? In authority, we've got just as much skill as you do, these men of Korah. We don't have time to look at these examples in detail. I simply bring them to your attention. Be a noble Berean. Go there, read these verses. Check me out on it. Long story short, God says to the very people that questioned the authority of Moses and Aaron that was given to them by God, God says to those people who are, their one complaint is this, we're not getting any of the power. We need some power too. Why does Moses and Aaron have to be the only ones who get the power? Why do they have to be the only ones? And if you think that's only the men of Korah, I want to show you something that can be a little bit alarming when you stop and think about it. Sometimes people you would never expect to show this kind of pride do. You see it in the pulpit sometimes. That's right. Even among preachers, you see it. You see it in the leadership sometimes. Yes, even among some leaders, you see it. Diotrephes is not dead. He's alive in spirit. 
in the spirit of some who are determined. They've got to be the number one honcho in charge. And if you don't believe that, it's their way or the highway. Just test them and try them out on it. And if you don't believe there are some preachers who are more worried about who's getting the credit. I've had my heart broken to see on more than one occasion preachers working at the same congregation engaging in this game of who can beat who to the house of the loved ones who've just lost their loved ones so that they can get maybe the funeral and not have to. I wish I could tell you I was making this up and that no preachers I've known would ever, ever engage in a petty game of, well, you're getting more credit than I am, and that hurts my feelings, and so we're not going to be as close now as we used to be. What? What are we doing? Moses, Aaron, Miriam. You're a team. Miriam and Aaron are not happy. Numbers chapter 12. What's the problem? Well, if you just read verse 1 of Numbers 12, you'd think the problem is only about Moses marrying this Ethiopian woman. That's not the real problem. That's one aspect of the problem. The deeper problem is identified in verse 2. Here's their problem. Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Has he not spoken also by us? Moses is getting all this credit and we're not getting very much. And the Lord heard it, just like he heard the murmuring in Exodus 16. He hears this whining here and this murmuring and whimpering here in Numbers chapter 12. God calls them all out before him, and he says, I speak to Moses, and it's my right to speak to Moses as I choose. And you all need to acknowledge that my servant Moses is meek, unlike you who are so interested in self-glory and self-promotion that you can't... Uh, hush about how you're not getting enough credit. And so Miriam must have been the ringleader in this because she's the one God strikes with leprosy. And Aaron begs and pleads and prays that she be delivered from this, and she is. The whole congregation has to stop for seven days because she's quarantined because of her leprosy. You, you think, surely, that, and you know what? We ought to be more like Moses. In Numbers chapter 11, the previous chapter, Uh, Verse number 27, there ran a young man. He told Moses, he said, hey, did you know Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp? You're the prophet around here, aren't you? And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men answered and said, my Lord Moses, you need to stop them. Forbid them from prophesying. You're the prophet. Moses says, verse 29, envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. It's not about me getting the credit. I remember we had a gospel meeting years ago in Knoxville, Tennessee. This man came in, visiting preacher. He, I'd been studying with this young man for some time and we'd made some headway, but we hadn't gotten to the point where he was ready to become a Christian yet. But he really hit it off with our visiting preacher And they had quite a connection, and uh, they spent some time together that week. And during the last uh, night of of the meeting, he came forward to be baptized, and he asked me after I took his statement if the visiting preacher could be the one to baptize him. And I said, sure, absolutely, no problem at all. We'll be glad to arrange that. And I went to the visiting preacher and asked him if he would do this, and he graciously agreed to do it. And I'll never forget, one of the elders came up to me afterwards he said, didn't that bother you? I said, I'm sorry. 
He said, you know, you've been studying for months with this young man. This guy comes in and within a matter of just days, he'd rather have him baptize you, uh, baptize him than you. Didn't that bother you? I said, Paul said, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's not about who gets the credit or who gets the glory for this, that, or that. It's about salvation. It's about souls. It's not a competition. Lighthouses are not in competition. And members are not in competition to get known by someone else. Someone got mentioned in the church bulletin as having done something I did something for the church. It didn't get in the bulletin. Hmm. I'm not happy. I'm going to pout. Now, my friends, am I telling you anything you don't already know? That we can be, starting behind me and coming forward, we've got to check our ego sometimes, don't we? We got our feelings hurt. Why? Well, because so-and-so didn't speak to me when I spoke to them. Did they definitely hear you speak to them? I know my wife and I talk about this mode that I get in when I'm getting ready to speak called sermon mode. Other preachers can know about it. Other teachers know about this. Sermon mode. My mind is on what I'm going to say. You might even talk right at me and I don't even hear a word you're saying. One lady told me at a congregation years ago when I visited her and said, I understand you used to attend. Why don't you come anymore? She said, I'll tell you exactly why I don't come. One day the former preacher who was here was walking down the aisle. I said hello to him, didn't say a word back to me. I said, are you sure he heard you? Oh, he heard me. I said, have you ever approached him and told him that it bothered you that he didn't talk to you? He might tell you that he didn't hear you. Oh, he heard me. I know he heard me. I said, have you ever talked to him about it? No. I don't, I'm never talking to that man again. He won't talk to me. Why should I talk to him? Now tell me we don't need to overcome pride and arrogance in the local church. We've got a problem with it. And you see it in the children of Israel. You see it uh, in so many places. You see it on the uh, battlefield. I wish I had time to look at all these in the detail. I'd, I'd like to look at them on the battlefield. You see them in Deuteronomy chapter 1 saying, you know what, we're going to go fight. Well, wait a minute, God doesn't want you to go. Well, that's all. we got this. We've got this. And they go and they get absolutely whipped. Deuteronomy 1, 41 to 45. Then we read of them saying in Joshua 7, you know, these Aites, they're, they're nothing. We don't even need our whole army to fight these guys. We got this. No need to put everybody to work. Let's just send out a small group and we'll take care of them, dispatch them, and we'll be right back. Yeah, they were right back all right. They were running for their lives. There was sin in the camp. They somehow got the false idea that their strength was what was giving them all these victories. They forgot that if God is not for us, who can be against us? Anyone, even the small guy. If God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 doesn't matter. Gideon can handle thousands of Midianites with 300 soldiers on Gideon's side as long as God is on his side. It's pride. We sometimes think we're the reason why things are going so well. And uh, that is seen on the battle. Oh, Rabshakeh of the Assyrian army. He came in 2 Kings chapter uh, 18, and you can read all this in 2 Kings 18 and 19. He taunted, I mean, he taunted the Israelites. He said, hey, uh, don't let your king convince you 
the Judah, actually the Judean king Hezekiah says, Do not let your king of Judah convince you that things are going to be any different for you than they were about 20 years ago with what we did up north. We wiped out those people up there and the God that they served, isn't that the same God you all serve? Well, not really, because they were so thoroughly idolatrous, they'd abandoned their real love and devotion to God a long time ago, and Judah was headed in that direction. Hezekiah was a good king overall. But here's this taunt. You can't stop us. You can't do anything to us. No, gods have been able to. And guess what? Without firing a single shot, God took 185,000 of them out of commission. And I wonder what happened to the boastful, taunting Rabshakeh after that. You've seen it in movies. There's this villain. He's arrogant. He's condescending. He's so up here and everyone else is beneath him. And you can't wait for him to get his what he has coming, can you? I'm telling you, God is in control and God is on the throne. But that leads me to the next observation. You see pride on the thrones of so many kings in the Bible. Pharaoh. Exodus, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? You're about to find out, Pharaoh. Yes. There will be plague after plague after plague. You, you know, when we visited Egypt on our Bible lands trip, one thing I found remarkable in one sense and yet not really all that surprising in another is that I never did hear, even though we were on an Egyptian tour bus, of the very area where the Israelites had wandered and been able to defeat the Egyptian armies by the power of God, we never did hear our Egyptian tour guide really mention much about that. The Egyptians, I would say, don't really want to talk that much about one of the most humiliating military defeats in history when the most powerful army of the day was defeated without the Israelites having to fire a shot. God took care of them. And Pharaoh found out who the Lord was, Saul. You're such a tall, handsome man. Yes. And you're going to be the first king of Israel. All right? Good. In 1 Kings 13, only one year into his reign, Saul says, You know what? Samuel said he's coming to offer this sacrifice and make these uh, priestly... Uh, I'm tired of waiting on him. I'm going to force myself to offer a sacrifice. Now, I don't have any divine authority to do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. And you remember his kingdom is rent from him. First, King, First Samuel 15, go spare not, don't spare the Amalekites, spare nothing. Don't do anything to spare them. He spares them. He th- and here's what he's told by Samuel in that passage. Saul, when you were little in your own sight, God sent you on a journey. You humbled yourself, God exalted you. When you started getting to the point of exalting yourself, God brought you down. Uzziah, you're a king, yes. You know, it's not your job to offer incense, to burn incense. That's priestly work. Yeah, I know, but I'm the king. I can do what I want. Second Chronicles 26. And no, you can't do what you want. God says you're not authorized. Well, I'm going to do it. And if I have to take this censer and beat you all senseless with it, I'll do it. And you know what, my friends? He turned leprous and went fleeing and was leprous till the day he died because his arrogance got the best of him. Haman, you're so concerned about self-promotion and getting the throne someday, and Mordecai won't bow to you, will he? 
Mordecai won't bow, so you're going to take it upon yourself to see to it that Mordecai hangs. You even build a gallows in the book of Esther for Mordecai the Jew. Racial turn. Mordecai the Jew. You're going to make sure he hangs. Well, guess what, Haman? Pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Proverbs 16, 18. You're the one who's going to hang on that gallows. And indeed, you read the book of Esther. And did it Nebuchadnezzar. You're walking all around your palace and you're saying, Look at what I've done. I'm amazing. I've come up with the greatest kingdom in the world. And God says that you did this. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar, you're going from the palace to grazing in the field like a beast. You're going to be like a bovine, boanthropy. Is this rare but sometimes existent mental condition in which people come to the point where they think they're cattle and they think they need to graze? Can you imagine what CNN or Fox News or someone would do with it if the President of the United States went from one day being in the White House to grazing on the White House lawn the next day? You think that would be on YouTube? Think that would make the news? God got Nebuchadnezzar's attention and said, uh, The Most High rules in the kingdom of men. He gives it to whomsoever He will. You didn't get this by yourself. I gave all the rich fool in Luke 12. Look what I did. I did this. My, 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 I, I, I. It's all about me, me, me. And I'm going to have to pull down my barns and build bigger ones because I'm the smartest. And most, uh, God says, uh, you're going to die tonight. And then who will these things be which thou hast provided? Oh, you did this? I don't think so. I could go on and on and on. You can find pride in the lofty mountains. I'll just summarize. Edom, you think you're so high up there. You are so highly perched up in the craggy mountains, no enemy army could ever get to you up here. Guess what? Even though you're like an eagle up here, I can bring you down because I'm higher than you are. I'm God. You can read about it in the book of Obadiah, the book of Jeremiah 49, 15, and 16. Babylon. Your walls aren't tall enough. Oh, our walls are 300 feet high and 87 feet thick in some sections, according to Herodotus, the historian of old. And uh, we, we, no one can get to us. Uh, God says that your walls aren't tall enough. You know what they had written on their walls? Bell, B-E-L, protects. Their God will protect their walls. And lo and behold... God found a way to go under those walls and take care of Babylon just like that. You find pride in the synagogues, on the street corners, and in the temple. Matthew 6. Don't do your, what you do out in public so that everyone can see how you're praying in public. Uh, you, I mean, I don't mean it's wrong to say a public prayer if you're quietly praying, but if you're trying to bring attention to yourself, by some kind of loud prayers it to say, look how pious I am. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a publican. Pharisee can't pat himself on the back enough. Look how great I am. This, I'm not like this despicable sinner over here. You see it in the synagogues. You see it on the street corners and in the temple. You see it on the farm, as we just said, with the man, the rich fool. You see it in a dinner party. In Luke 7, Luke 11, and Luke 14... Read those passages, Luke 7, Luke 11, Luke 14. See Jesus at a dinner party, and on all these occasions, look at the pride that's being served up. It's the biggest dish on the menu. Those people are so proud and arrogant, they can't see 
any need for Jesus to spend any time helping sinners. Why, the very idea, you ought to be talking to us, the righteous ones. We don't need this salvation stuff. And you know, you see pride in the pulpits. You see it in the pew. You see it among the disciples as we close. Here are the apostles. They're great men. I mean, they're good men. Overall, they're tremendous men. Yet they're having a, there's a, a fight, a feud. Why? Did you hear what James and John's mother tried to do? Did you hear? She went to Jesus and tried to get special positions for her boys. That would put us under their authority. I'm not serving under them. And Jesus comes up to them while they're fighting. So what are you all fighting about? Oh, we're, we're fine. No, you're not. Come here. Let's have a meeting. Let's talk this out. And Jesus in Luke 22 does that very thing. You see pride in Corinth as those church members are taking each other to court. And I've got a better gift than you've got. And you've got your gift's not as good as mine. And on and on and on and on we could go. I tell you those who are close tonight, one place you'll never find pride in the Bible. One place you'll never find it. And that's in Jesus. You don't see a particle of it in Jesus Christ. He emptied himself and took upon the form of a servant. You talk about overcoming pride and arrogance. So many passages we could go to. I'll leave you with this one as we give the invitation. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God thought, didn't think his equality with God a thing to be grasped as the ASV says. But no, rather he emptied himself. He was willing to deny self and to take upon himself the being found in fashion as a man, which was definitely a demotion for him as far as who he was. He was willing to go down the totem pole, go down the corporate ladder instead of trying to say, I'm insisting on my rights. I'll climb and climb and climb until I get what I want. And if you won't give me what I want... I won't, I know a man, he's a deacon in the church at a congregation that I was involved with. The elders were appointing some new elders. Somehow, for some reason, I don't know all the reasons, they passed him over. They passed him over. Okay. Now what's he going to do? Well, I'll show them. I'll resign as a deacon if you don't appreciate me. And that proved what? Why am I doing what I'm doing? I'm not doing this for accolades. I'm not doing this to advance myself up the ladder. I'm doing this for Christ. And Christ didn't care about who gets the credit. Someone said it's amazing what can be accomplished if you don't care who gets the credit. Right? Jesus did all of this. And I want to be like Him. I want to imitate Jesus in my life and be like Him in every way. I hope and pray tonight that all of us will overcome any vestige of pride that we see beginning to crop up in us. We need to take that and stop it right away. We need to, if you'll pardon the expression from my childhood and my Andy Griffith days do come out every now and then, and we need to nip it in the bud, pride. Stop it before it even starts to grow. Stop it. And if you see it growing in you and that ugliness is starting to make you look at it and say, I'm not proud of what I'm seeing then I'm asking you to be like Christ 
If you're not a member of a church that belongs to Christ, I would encourage you to become one by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. Where did I get those steps? They're all in the book of Acts. I challenge you to read the Bible and find me out on it. See if those steps aren't there and see if that's not what they did. If you're already, you say, I've already done that. That's great. It's marvelous. Uh, Simon, you've been baptized. Yes, yeah, right. You were baptized. You believed and were baptized. That's right. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Simon himself believed and he was baptized. Therefore he was saved. Mark 16, 16, Acts 8, 13. Then Simon the sorcerer said, I'll pay you apostles money if you'll give me the power to impart miraculous gifts to others like you can. And there's every indication Simon had in mind I want to be as powerful as they are, and I can make some money off of this too. Charge for my services. I'm telling you, this man who'd already been baptized shows us that you can believe and be baptized, become a Christian, and then fall into pride. Don't do it. If you're here tonight and you need to take care of your situation and humble yourself in the sight of the Lord once again as you once did, then I beckon you to do it as the invitation song is about to be sung. Won't you come to the humble Savior? He will exalt you if you'll humble yourself and obey His gospel or come back to Him now. As together we stand and sing, won't you please get rid of your pride? Please. <laughs>